0: This Trib Live Hot Seat conversation was recorded in front of a live audience and is presented by the KDK Harmon Foundation with the support of AT&T, Christus Health, BP, Raise Your Hand Texas, and the Texas Coalition of Dental Service Organizations. For more information on the Texas Tribune and the dozens of free Trib Live events the Tribune hosts each year, go to texastribune.org. Thank you. Please... Join me in welcoming Representative Vireal and Senator Areci. Thank you both for being here. Let me begin with a philosophical question that gets to the competing views of the universe in Austin at the Capitol these days. Dr. Campbell, one theory espoused by the governor and many Republicans, and I'm going to just take a stab that you subscribe to this as well, is that in this state we do not have a revenue problem, we have a spending problem. Representative Villarreal the alternate view uh, of the universe, and I'm going to take a stab that you subscribe to this, is that we don't have a spending problem, we have a failure to invest in the future of Texas problem. Let me ask each of you, well, hold your applause. Let me ask each of you to talk about that philosophical divide, assuming you agree with it. And give us a sense of the frame that will be around this legislative session where dollars as always will be hard to come by and priorities will be great. Sure. Dr. Campbell.
1: Happy to take that first. Um, Yes, I do believe that we need to look at uh, how we are spending and have a more efficient dollar for essential government, not just throwing money out there. So, in that respect, I do believe in um, having limited spending and tightening our belts, if you would, but looking at targeted cuts, if you will. Um, They did well. They cut last session. But I I do think it's a false dilemma to isolate out, because we want smart spending, wise spending, that we're not willing to fund essential functions of government. Mm -hmm. And so I'm on board with that. um yes i am philosophically one just like anybody else in your family when you don't have an expanded budget or unlimited money you've got to look at wants and needs yeah we're going to provide the needs but in our families we're going to choose the the wisest choice for our dollar try to stretch it so that's where I am. And your point
0: of view, Dr. Campbell, is that we don't need more money than we have today, that we have an adequate amount of money to deal with the priorities of the state?
1: Well, I'm not going to say that. that. That's a blanket statement. And until I find out what essential government needs are, mm-hmm. you know, how can I really put a dollar value on that? Right. I can say that I, I do believe that once you get into the weeds, there are going to be efficiencies we can find to use that revenue rather than just automatically going out and looking for ways to raise new dollars. So
0: free up dollars that are there right now and use them for better purposes. Yes. Right, Representative, yeah. you, uh, you were part of the legislative session uh, last time in which, depending upon the math, different people do the math differently, $15 billion, $17 billion, maybe up to $27 billion mm-hmm. came out of the budget, public education, higher ed, health care, among the things that saw the biggest cuts. Do you share Dr. Campbell's view that the dollars are there if we simply become more efficient with the way that we spend them, and that we don't need to go out and find more dollars?
2: Well, I suppose I first want to say that I appreciate Dr. Campbell's statement about wanting to first take a look at what the actual needs are, and, and, and view the evidence. <clears throat> and that's, I think that's the way we need to approach this. I am reluctant to try to get into a philosophical discussion about this, I kind of approach my legislative work more uh, pragmatically and I suppose more like a technician. And so if we're interested in improving the quality of our workforce, we know we need to improve the quality of the education our students Mm -hmm. are receiving. We know that if we want to meet the needs, uh, our water needs, in our growing state and our growing economy, we need to make certain investments in water. Um, and, and so in this way, I sort of approach the budget process in a more practical fashion. Um, in, in my tenure, what I have seen is that we actually have consistently cut in critical areas, like education. In fact, since 2001, when Rick Perry became governor, his first session, to today investing in education has dropped by 16% we are a state that is big and increasingly more diverse and more urban our challenges are serious and i would say our greatest challenge our yep. greatest challenge is making sure our kids are educated and ready for the future because they're gonna be competing not against Oklahoma and Colorado, they're gonna be competing against India and China, and they will compete either for quality jobs right. or for low quality jobs. But they're, they're gonna be competing. You know. And so we need to be practical. I would say for this coming session, there are we have a limited amount of money and we need to be smart and strategic about using it in in, in areas. We're not gonna do across the board, mm-hmm. you know, undo the cuts. But we can do things like Fully fund Texas grants, which is a program we know. Financial aid program. Our financial aid program, our primary one that helps children who have done everything that we've asked them to. They've made the grade. They've applied to college. They've gotten in to a college. They just can't afford it. We should we should fund that because no, we know that when students can fully engage as students, right? They're more likely to graduate and go into the workforce prepared to make our future more prosperous. Representative, I'm
0: hearing you back on the public ed thing. I'm hearing you cite the 16% figure, which I don't have in front of me, so I can't say whether it's true or not. I'll, I'll, I'll assume for the moment that it's true. I that would lead me to, That would lead me to believe that you believe that there is a direct relationship between funding of public education and the quality of the public schools. You know there are many people who think that money is not the answer to making our public schools better, or the sole answer. Mm-hmm.
2: Yes, and, and the reason why I have actually come to this conclusion, I, I've had some small conversations with different folks is over the last six months I've been building this awesome database on high schools. And I have data on every single Texas high school over the last decade, how they've performed, who their students are, who their faculty are, how much money we give them, what's the student to teacher ratio. And in my analysis, what I have concluded is that money does matter. It does matter. There is a strong correlation between how much we spend and the likelihood of a campus hitting a higher mark on our accountability system. I did not readily come to that conclusion. In fact, w- as I was do- estimating this model, what I found was that there was no correlation. And then I did something. And a professor, uh, uh, econometrician at UT suggested it. I took the natural log of money per student. And, and boom, <laughs> I saw this incredible correlation. And so, I, I, you know, don't come to this conclusion philosophically. I come to it by just looking at the data. So your
0: position is better schools spend more money per student than schools for students. And, and you
2: different. know what? Here's the reason. It's common sense. So how is it that more money can improve performance? Ask any superintendent, and you know what they'll tell you? Well, we can hire uh, teachers that are trained in chemistry to teach chemistry. We can lower our student-to-teacher ratio. We can do things like invest in quality pre-K. We can hire a full-time librarian, not a part-time librarian. And so common sense tells us, yeah, not only does the data make sense, but that there is sound reason to believe that money does matter. And if you go to any campus, go to, go to Alma Heights, one of our, our great uh, school districts here in San Antonio. Yeah. And you suggest that uh, you're going to take away you know, some of their locally generated money, boy, you will have a fight on your hands. And the reason why those parents will fight you tooth and nail is because they know that, that investment they translates believe in the correlation.
0: into student performance. Let me bring Dr. Campbell in on this. Dr. Campbell, do you agree with Representative Vireal that money does matter in terms of the quality of our public education system?
1: I think that we do have to have obviously funds to fund public higher education. Both. No one could be more proponent, obviously, for public education and higher education than me as a first generation college uh, graduate and public school all the way. Yeah. I don't believe that money, throwing money at a bad process <laughs> is going sure. to work. Great. Do I, I believe that, you know, we have got great children's minds, we've got great teachers but somewhere along the line trying to mesh them with the process that we have is failing Mm -hmm. so we need to examine the process of our public education you know we're spending what about two hundred and twenty million dollars little high two hundred and seventeen million on and I'm just giving you an example for remedial education okay those dollars could be put back into public school. But we're having to put that into remedial to fill the gap between graduation in high school and first year in college. Well, where are we, that's evidence that we're failing somewhere in our education system. I do believe that every public official, Democrat, Republican, is concerned about our children, about educating our workforce, But I want to see efficiencies. Twenty years ago, roughly 20 years ago, you know, the the student-teacher ratio, you know, one child, one teacher to five children. Now we're looking at a at a one-to-one. Are librarians important full-time? Yes. Full-time teachers. Our chemistry teachers? Yes. But somewhere along the way, We've put more emphasis in bricks and mortar, field houses, and non-teacher dollars. So
0: you'd like to see Dr. Campbell that money that you say is being spent on non-instruct I'm gonna just lump it as non-instructional use. You would put those dollars where? When you go I into the Senate next time, the, what would you advocate for? I,
1: I would advocate to drive the dollars back to the classroom. I I haven't I don't have a spreadsheet to see. BUT I'M INTERESTED IN THAT, LOOKING sure. AT THAT WITH YOU, like PLEASE. Yeah. Um, and, BUT I'M INTERESTED IN DRIVING THE DOLLARS TO THE CLASSROOM, AND WHO BEST FOR ME TO GET MY ADVICE FROM, AND GOD TELLS US TO SURROUND OURSELVES WITH WISE COUNSEL, FROM THE TEACHERS IN THE CLASSROOM, THE TEACHERS IN THE DISTRICT, TO TELL ME, WHAT DO WE NEED? ONE SKILL SET I BRING AS yep. A PHYSICIAN IS I LISTEN. I MEAN, HOW MANY OF YOU REALLY GO TO THE DOCTOR? IF YOU GET A DOCTOR THAT DOESN'T LISTEN, do you leave happy I don't think so so I bring that skill set yeah and I want to hear how can we improve I see where we have some deficits and some gaps right so I, I'm all on board for learning where we can drive the dollars to help improve our education would you, would
0: you be willing Dr. Campbell before I come back to Representative Vigal would you be willing to consider if more money is available in the next session and I suspect that people in both parties would like to believe that the economy has rebounded to the extent that there's more money Available. I think there may be. Would you be willing to consider putting some of the money back into public air that got cut last time?
1: I think the answer is yes. Yeah. Now, with that obviously comes conditions. Are we going to use the dollar most efficiently? Right. So let's be accountable there. And you're, you're going to agree. You're a numbers guy. Mm-hmm. You're going to want to make sure the dollar spent most efficiently.
2: No, absolutely. And, and so, I, I good, we
1: agree with that. I, we
2: agree with that, absolutely. And, and I An, you an outbreak of, what, of bipartisanship. What, what we right need there. To do. <laughs> so, so. And if I could jump in. Somebody tweet that. Yeah, all right. So <laughs> I, I, you know, too often we have this debate at a, and at a ridiculously high level. You know, does money matter? Well, let's get under the hood. Let's actually look at the details of what makes a high-performing school. Um, it's a school where the principal evaluates teachers.
1: Local control. Um, ha, Back ha, down into the uh, is,
2: a, is able to... Um, Uh, bring professional development to shore up the needs of their faculty it's it's things like this that that we need to spend time and and Mm -hmm. focus our energy on I I do believe money matters and it really matters on how you spend it right and how you spend it and so we need to do things like focus our limited dollars because we are gonna have some money on things like pre-k we know from our own data kids that go through pre-K, outperform their counterparts who did not go through pre-K. In third grade reading, in math, and years to come, they continue to outperform those kids who didn't get pre-K. And, and, would, and not by little. We're talking about 40% more do not fail. And 30% more hit the highest marks on these tests.
1: But I think I would just, you know since we're a casual conversation, I think I would to beg, beg to differ a bit in that because some literature does show that those who have pre-K by the time they get to fourth grade you really can't tell a difference so we need to no, look actually at that that's literature, not accurate. we need but to look at the literature the, and decide. The,
2: the way you, uh, you know, the, the the way I think we should approach this is what does the body of evidence say about this and the vast research on pre-K tells us this is the biggest bang for our buck i would even go as far as saying you know what let's let's just shift existing dollars in our public school system to those early years because that would be even be a smarter allocation than the existing way money is being spent well but, but that that will come with sacrifices because right now in San Antonio from Harlandel to Alamo Heights the number of classes that are 30 students to one teacher has doubled because of the cuts that happened last session and we will see more of that if we shift
1: well, funding have, from high schools I, to early I, Dr. Campbell, you had I a point think on what that. I would like yeah. to um, to look at and again I'm listening and, and I am taking it all in but I would rather see our dollars look at look at the where we're having our problems in our public schools put those dollars between first grade and 12 I mean um, I would really you know we've got to make some choices we're, we need to look at efficiency mm-hmm. and let's talk with teachers I do believe in a science-based decisions so I, I think that uh, if we agree to disagree on the pre-K, but good. I mean, San Antonio is gonna have a pilot study, if you will. Right. So we can follow some of that. <laughs> but, but right now, with limited dollars, let's see what we can do with uh, funding the enrollment that we have and look at focusing first grade through 12. Right. Not to purposely leave out anybody that wants to have pre-K. Because there is a certain population that's willing to pay, parents that's willing to pay for pre K. But I believe that we've got such great teachers that we can take a child entry into kindergarten bypassing pre K, and they can still have a great education. And I'm willing to, to look at that. But well, I'm willing to look at all of it.
0: You all will debate this, I have no doubt, on opposite sides of the Capitol uh, uh, beginning in January. So let me, let me just, in the limited time, we have move to another topic. Dr. Campbell, you are Dr. Campbell. Health care is a big issue in the state. We know from the U.S. Census that there are 5.8 million uninsured Texans. 23% of our population is uninsured. We're first among the states in the percentage of our population that's uninsured. As of right now, with the reelection of the president, the Affordable Care Act is unlikely to be repealed. We now know it from the Supreme Court, from the Roberts Court, that it's uh, constitutional. And so mm-hmm. the question is what the state does. You are a doctor. You have seen yes. the, the health care system from the inside. Yes. As of right now, the governor has declined to take advantage of the opportunity to expand Medicaid, has yes. declined to set up a state insurance exchange. Do you agree with those decisions of the governors?
1: Yes, I do. How come? But, and let me, let me talk to you about that. Let's look first at Medicaid. As a doc, first of all, you know, only about 31% of physicians accept Medicaid. And we're asking to expand the roles. We've got needy families who right now qualify to be on Medicaid. Why haven't they taken the accountability or responsibility and signed up? Medicaid has only expanded from its inception in 1965 it's an expanded broken model I think all of us would agree we would help anybody on the street who needed help we would help our needy families that's not the question but how can we bring it in under an efficient dollar I see as a physician, I see gaming of the system. A story. Parents have a child. Both parents are on insurance. Private insurance. Their child is on Medicaid. Where is where is that thought? Why wouldn't the child be on the parents insurance? And you know, do we need to look at, at incentives? But at the least we need to find out why. Right now, the state, because of the funding, only has, we, we have really minimal flexibility from what I understand. I'll find out more when I'm there. But the only thing they can really do is cut provider services, fees. Do we really think more physicians coming into the state, do we really think more physicians are going to want to take Medicaid? No, but so we need to bring incentive uh, reimbursement up to, to the level at least of Medicare. So if we expand a system, more people to get on Medicaid, then we're expanding on a broken system, number one. Well, what about the dollars we're gonna lose? That's for three years, 100%. First of all, you gotta believe, is the government gonna keep the word at 100%? And where are they getting their dollars? Are they borrowing them? But what happens after three years, that 90%? Um, Kellogg, Kaiser, which what a, a foundation, Kaiser I think, has estimated it's going to cost 2.7 billion that 10% we pick up over 10 years. That's just an estimate. Where are we going to get those dollars? So we need to look at that. And to, to get, grab that carrot that's dangled in front of us and not expect government strings attached, I think is, is a little cavalier. And I would prefer to, to look at you know all the cards on the table Take a look before we just assume that we're losing out on a good deal because the government's going to give us all these dollars for three years. Now, if they gave it to us in perpetuity, bring it on, without strings. Let us decide.
0: But the fact that it's short-term, Dr. Campbell, you're well. Not.
1: That's a big thing, and <laughs> right. the fact that it's going, and I will, the fact that it's going to expand a broken system.
0: You're not for it. No. Representative Villarreal, uh Steve. Uh, Uh, Murdoch and Michael Klein from the Hobby Center at Rice University, Dr. Murdoch is the former state demographer and U.S. Census Bureau director, said that of the 5.8 million who are uninsured, if we would simply embrace the Affordable Care Act, particularly the federal expansion of Medicaid, we might be able to insure 3 million of those 5.8 million citizens by the end of 2014. Dr. Campbell obviously has problems with the program. On the other hand, that's an awful lot of citizens we might be able to, if Dr. Murdoch and Mr. Klein are correct. It's hard to look at that and say, no, we, we actually declined to do that. Uh, on a humanitarian level,
2: we have, <coughs> the way I look at this is we have the largest population of uninsured in the country. We have the largest share of our population, if you want to look at it in terms of percentages. Uh, one out of every four Texans do not have insurance. That doesn't mean they don't have access to health care. They actually do. They have access to health care that is the most expensive,
0: this and is the emergency going
2: room. into the emergency room. It's the least humane, and it's the most expensive, and, it relies, <laughs> and it relies on property taxes. It relies we'll on property. We let the taxes. emergency room doc
0: respond to that in a and, second. There. And, said, Hold on, yeah, and it and, relies and, on
2: property taxes. And, and, and so, um, these folks are going to receive health care. It's going to be the most expensive. Would you agree with that?
1: Emergency care is and it, more expensive and than a clinic, and,
2: and it it is paid for by property taxes. The alternative is to expand Medicaid. Medicaid so many doctors aren't participating because we have starved that program in the state of Texas. We, we keep our rates so bottom barrel that doctors can't participate. And, and so what we need to do is, I, I believe, look seriously at this offer. It's, it's a ratio of one to nine. So for every one dollar that we have to spend, the federal government will give us nine. And, and over the course of, from 13 to 2017, It's about $28 billion into the state. If we do not expand Medicaid, we are still on the hook for all the taxes that will go to support this program for the rest of the nation. The Medicaid payroll taxes, uh, certainly the tax on individuals who uh, can't afford, or or maybe choose not to get health insurance, they're going to have to pay. Uh, You're going to see our large corporations who currently sponsor group insurance choose to step out and have their employees go to the exchange, the federal exchange, but without the kind of subsidies that they could take advantage of had Texas expanded Medicaid. So I I am uh, very concerned about what looks like the governor's stance of just saying, no way. Uh, I I think it's going to have a huge uh, human impact on children and our families, and it's going to have a huge economic impact.
0: On our state. Dr. Campbell, we know that this problem of the high percentage of citizens who are uninsured is not a Rick Perry problem because we had a high percentage when George Bush was governor. We had a high percentage when Ann Richards was governor. It's been a Texas problem for some time. All this time has passed. The state wants to have control of the situation without the federal government's interference, and yet over these last 20 years, we haven't solved the problem. So if we don't take advantage of the Affordable Care Act, what will we do proactively or affirmatively to solve the problem?
1: Let me back up just a little bit. Um, First of all, the, we're talking about expanding Medicaid. The Medicaid we have now, the recipients, use the emergency room when they could use a clinic. Their choice. You know, Why do they use the emergency room? Quick, easy. They're down the hall. <coughs> it is in mine. So seriously, I'm not talking the eight hour wait at LBJ or BRAC, but I am telling you, I get, the, I get children I get parents, uh, disability folks. That you have to wonder how they even got on Medicaid. I'm not talking children. I'm talking about people with a stuttering problem on Medicaid. Come to the ER. They could be in a clinic because why? Well, they have to be home pick up their children or whatever at a certain time. They can come into the ER. They do get seen. Except must run a very
0: efficient ER. I do.
1: Yeah. I do. But and and they. But the point is. ER's are overcrowded with folks that could go to a clinic there's nothing in this that drives people out of the emergency room back to a responsible resource like the clinic and then when we look at insurance insured those uninsured if we take out those that are not Texas citizens they're counted in the population that are not covered in insurance are we we're going to insure all comers so The point is is when I think our numbers are inflated compared to other states because we're including our illegals. So we need to really look at numbers, number-wise, because we want the best care in the emergency room for emergencies. We want people to be accountable that are on Medicaid to, to go where they need to go to get the care. We do need to incentivize physicians and other providers and bring their salary up so that they will take care of our needy, or the ones on Medicaid. So we've got a lot to think about. But you know, and and I think the the devil's in the details. And I'm not ready to just sign on with the federal government for anything that is likely to trump. Yeah, right, but Dr. On Campbell, do you have but Dr. Campbell,
0: do you have an alternative that you're willing to offer, even in bare bones? Now, if we don't like what the federal government's doing, what do we like? What do we think the state should be doing?
1: Well, I think number one, we need to look at how we can. Recover, Medicaid, define who's truly needy and and who is not. I can see in one room, truly defined needy person on Medicaid. The next room, I mean a story real quick, I realize we've got, man, I see a 23 year old not too long ago in the ER, whatever the complaint was. I said, do I, do I need after I'm getting ready to discharge? Do I need to write a note so to keep you off work tomorrow? No, I I, I don't work. Well, how I am Well, how do you pay your rent? Well, I, I I get disability. I'm on Medicaid. And I'm, well, how what are you? How are you on Medicaid? What for what? Well, I I I I, I stutter, which I just heard at that point. And I said, really? And I said. Well, let me tell you something you don't have to utter a word to dig a ditch and I'm using that not to not to sound cruel but that's gaming our system that's taking dollars away from needed folks that could use it well I see that so we need to go back and look at that look at fraud waste abuse reassess and and maybe look at a sliding scale something that people have a little bit of sweat equity in it I am NOT talking about are children of needy families and are disabled, are truly disabled. But then you know, in one You know, over thing my
2: last 10 years, what I have seen in state government is anecdotal cases like this used to make policy that affects everybody. So all poor kids are denied access to- No, no, no. Kids. Because we've come across a, a here or there example. And I think we can do better. I think we can do better, and I think our kids need us to really figure this out and get to yes. Because in the end, it's going to mean children are not going to have access to the preventive health care services that they need.
1: I believe that they will have
2: access. I I wish they had access today. They 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 don't. Um, They have access through the ER. Uh, They do not have access to a medical home where they can go for regular checkups. Like my kids do, and maybe yours mm-hmm. do, or still do. On mine comes to the- um, and and, and one, one concern that you raised that I think I, I, is worth addressing um, you, you said, you know, if we, we, we don't know all the details and do we trust the federal government to not change the rules on us? You know, one thing yeah. that the Roberts Court produced in their ruling on the Affordable Care Act was a precedent that says once the federal government enters into a contract with the states to provide certain funding, they can't change the rules.
1: But that's why we're here
2: get, debating. But where are Medicaid, we going to get
1: our dollars? Right. So they. To so,
2: so Robert said that you you can't threaten the states to force them to expand Medicaid by taking away prior dollars, and that's 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 huge for anybody who concerns about uh, who has concerns about the balance of power between federal mm-hmm. the federal government and our state governments. Um, that, that is a, a ruling that you should appreciate and you should have confidence that now that that is the law of the land, we can look at the details of the contract that the Fed is offering and make a decision that is going to, that, we, that is stable and that won't change into the future. Let me
0: let Dr. Campbell have the last word and then I we're never, gonna have right. to open it up to questions. We're just invariably out of time. Right. So and ahead. you
1: know, um, I do, I know it is controversial. That's we know that. But, you know, first, when you have a bill and it's gonna take IRS agents to enforce it, yes, I do question that. They may have a contract with us that they'll pay us the dollars. Are we gonna continue to borrow it from China? They're looking at falling off the fiscal cliff. Seriously. And, And to expect they can, they can not, you know, do some mathematical wizardry for the 90% they say they're going to pay us in a few years. I do have a question that. My responsibility is to keep Texas strong, keep a strong, robust economy, and to take on a promise from the federal government. I'm afraid it would push us more off, closer to a fiscal cliff. I am committed to make sure our children, our disabled, and our seniors have good, medical care I'll tell you what, as the government gets more involved it is not going to be practicing by medical degree. Your care is going to be dictated by governmental decree. That's what's going to happen.
0: Well, let me uh, Uh, Let's have respect for our guests, please. We're going to end this part of the conversation here. There are many more topics that we could be talking about. Obviously, we've taken up a lot of time with public ed and health, which are the two big budget items in the state budget, so maybe that's not a bad thing. Um, I want to thank Representative Virial and Senator-elect Campbell for their time up here on stage for this portion. Let's give them a hand. Obviously, we heard some strong disagreements, and I think that you all will have a point of view as questioners uh, uh, for these guys, and let's uh, let's use the time we have wisely. We have a microphone in the back. We'll walk it around to you if you raise your hand, and we're more than happy to bring you into the conversation. Two gentlemen right there at that table, Natalia, and then we'll come up to the front.
3: Sir. Hi, Donna. How are you? Brian Chasnoff Metro columns at the Express yes, News. Um Brian. Hi. Um, Last year, Texas handed out $19 billion in business incentives, um, and I'm wondering, in the spirit of efficiencies, do you think that uh, the state should be become consider becoming more conservative in in that area in the incentives programs?
0: What do you think about business incentives?
1: Well, I'll tell you, um, if we're looking at um, great question, Brian, if we are looking at bringing in jobs, and I stop me if I'm wrong the incentives that are used for to bring in businesses right is a deal maker it closes the loop to bring in a business that by history it comes with a track record of bringing in jobs and that's what we're looking at bringing in jobs and then as the industry um, as we bring in industry, it increases our uh, revenue base. So if it is going, if it's the dollars used to close the loop on bringing businesses in that can bring in jobs to bring prosperity to, prosperity to our families and promote a robust, uh, a robust Texas economy, yes, I am for that. Am I for just throwing money out there? No, I'm not. But when we look at economic development, we're looking at supporting a strong Texas economy, supporting our families, and that's where I am.
0: Representative, the implication of the story that Brian is referencing is the New York Times story that ran earlier this week. The implication is that that $19 billion did not in fact get an adequate return, so the New York Times is point of view on the story was, that it did not get an adequate return on the investment. And the question was whether some of those 19 billion dollars might have been better spent on some of the programs that you've lamented today have been underfunded. What do you think about that?
2: We need to do a much better job of scrubbing our tax code. We need to scrub our tax code no different than we scrub our budget. We scrub our budget, we go line by line every legislative session. The tax code is another story. Once a special consideration gets in the books, in the tax code, we don't look at it again. I have proposed legislation to set up a citizens review panel that will put the tax code on a schedule and review every exemption, every special rule, every special consideration on a timeline. In essence, a sunset review process process for 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 tax exemptions. Uh, Your elected officials will still have the final say. Yeah. But this panel will able to shed some light yeah. and, and identify things like, there's this one giveaway that I had been fighting to erase from the books for at least three sessions. We finally got it done last session, the special uh, session, but uh, it, was a ten, it was a $10 million giveaway to any business that filled out a form and sent it into the comptroller. Part of what they had to uh, show evidence was that they were getting a tax rebate from a local city and, or a county. And if they did that, the comptroller would automatically cut them a check. Yeah. It, it, it was um, just, just a giveaway. You know, that program was originally set up for, a, for about 12 businesses that came to Texas or expanded their operations. Uh, and had an agreement with the school district to get a tax rebate we created this program because we were changing the law that year that said school districts couldn't give rebates and and so we were going to mitigate the change in the rules to this small group of businesses you got this off the books list those those businesses uh finished their their deal and every year after you know we made Mm -hmm. them whole new businesses came because the code, the, the law, was written so generically that just new businesses would fit the, the eligibility sign and sign up for it. So it, it's programs like that that aren't helping us grow jobs. And if you take a kind of macro picture look at this program, it's a zero-sum game. We're, not, we're just shifting jobs. We're competing with other states. We're stealing their jobs to bring them over here. Or the code allows cities. In the in, inside the state of Texas to compete with each other. And, and, and so it doesn't grow jobs, it just shifts jobs. It
0: looked like Dr. Campbell might have agreed in principle, obviously not seeing legislation with the idea of a sunset review of tax exemptions.
1: I never mind. I, I think it's, it's prudent to look at our laws, where dollars are going once again to decide if it's efficient and do we get a return on our dollars. Working
0: together already, I love that. Uh, sir, in the back. And then up here, at ma'am, in the front next. Sir. Um, so, I guess this is actually for both of, both of you. Um, a- as you kind of know, um, you know, transportation with TxDOT, right now, TxDOT right. funds are just basically enough to just do maintenance across the board in the, in the state. There really can no new projects. Uh, we have a state water plan that's com- basically has no funding for it at all. Right. Uh, Lieutenant Governor Dewhurst talked about taking in, trying to jumpstart those by going into the rainy day fund. I guess I, w- I want to ask this, uh, especially when I looked at, and starting with Dr. Campbell, uh, the Conservatives, last uh, the last biennium, were really opposed to going into the Rain Day Fund. Right. Yes. So I kind of would like your opinion on that and then also, yes. Mike, And the, the, t- the price tag that uh, Mr. Baer is referring to it's is billion. 3- $315 billion is the estimated road funding hole to maintain current roads at the current level of congestion. And the state water plan, again, completely unfunded, is $53 billion. Dr. Campbell, those are big-ticket items.
1: They are. And, uh, and I'm for that. But let me tell you why. The rainy day fund, like our family savings account, is for one time capital expenditures for a need that's not an ongoing budgetary item, if you will. And this is a capital expenditure for things we need. We don't even have a good road to kick the proverbial can down. And we've got to find solutions for our water, not wait for a crisis. We all know when you wait and pay for something at crisis time it costs more. So I am for taking money from the rainy day fund for one time you know one time capital expenditures for needed projects such as our water and our transportation. I am not for and hopefully we, we will not be tapping our general savings for obligations that should have been paid for just out of general revenue. And speaking of transportation, I'm also for stopping the diversions from Fund 6.
0: And Governor Dewhurst, what Mr. Bear, Mr. Virel, what Mr. Bear is referring to is the Governor Dewhurst's plan to take a billion dollars out of the rainy day fund essentially to kick start yes. the state water mm-hmm. plan. Yes. Governor yes. Perry has also spoken approvingly of that. What do you yeah. think about that? Yeah. All right, I, think we need to
2: fund our water infrastructure. And if that is the only option on the table, I will vote yes for that option. I will have to say, though, I I just want to set the record straight. The purpose of what we call the Rainy Day Fund, the real name of that fund is is the Economic Stabilization Fund. And its original purpose was to stabilize essential state services, like education, when there is an economic downturn in our economy. So in fact, its purpose was to fund ongoing expenses during times of recession. We are redefining the purpose of that. I I say we, I shouldn't include myself, I (laughs) I like the original purpose, but the governor has redefined it. Last session he said the only uh, reason to touch the economic stabilization fund is to pay for bills that have come due that aren't being covered in the current budget. Now we're hearing the purpose of the Economic Stabilization Fund is to pay for infrastructure, which by the way is ongoing because of those bonds, uh, you pay debt service on them over 30 years. And, and so <clears> I, I think we need to get a working definition. I would like us to use the Rainy Day Fund the way we used it last session, which is to cover past due bills that have come due we haven't set money aside.
0: For well, in fact, you may have to pay... Medicaid. You may have to do the, the $4.8 billion that you all... Mm-hmm. Effectively, you wrote a 17-month Medicaid budget for 24 months... That's right. ...by any I mean you're going to have to come back in now and pay back the $4.8 billion in Medicaid costs that you've already incurred. And so I, I'd like us to, to use the Rainy Day Fund for the, per, the, the way we used it last session. So you're for pulling pay, it out of the Rainy Day Fund for that? Pay that bill. Right. That Dr. Campbell, you're for that for. too? Take the money out of the Rainy Day Fund for Medicaid?
1: Uh, no. I'm hoping... And I believe, according to the comptroller, hopefully we will have money in our, the general revenue to pay at, for those obligations.
0: Because sales tax collections have improved, the Eagleford shale, the they economy have. has improved. Yes. But if the money is not available in the current budget, would you be willing to take that money, as was intended in the last session, out of the rainy day fund?
1: I need to look at, I need to really look at everything. You, you know, I
0: mean, the, the context that, uh, here's an important piece of context. We're
2: 50 out of 50 states in spending per Person, Okay, we are a low, low spending state. And, and so the theme today is, you know, how, how are we going to starve our essential, you know,
0: public services to our <laughs> children? Yeah, there, there are people in this room who hear that and they go, great. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and, now, and I wouldn't so, assume that you have the entire crowd. I,
2: I, I agree, I understand, <laughs> but I just want to call it what it is. And, and so the, the debate really is, are we going to be making do we believe our best days are ahead of us, or are they behind us? No, nope. they're, they're ahead of us. Then we, this generation, needs to do what prior generations did for us. Right. They sacrifice to provide for our public schools, to provide for our universities, so that it, when when it came our turn,
0: we would do the same for the next generation. Ma'am, you've been very patient. We have a microphone to bring around right here, right here in the front. Wow. Okay, you can use your outside <laughs> voice. Go ahead. That's fine.
3: The interest was 585 percent AER. Mm-hmm. I know at one point that um, state reference, attempted to do
2: something
0: mm-hmm.
3: about that. And yeah. the City, right. I can't understand why y'all can't come together in a bipartisan mm-hmm. way to do something about what the vital clearly defines as user-, user.
0: There was some action last session, was there not on payday loans, or there was an attempt to solve the problem? No, that's, so that's right. There was a. Um, a, a better system of licensing
2: and identifying uh, who is giving out these loans where they're operating, what the rates are uh, but not enough was done this coming session I expect legislation uh, will be filed and passed uh, Right now what we are seeing when we look across the state our cities are taking it into their own hands because the state has dragged its feet and and those those, Ordinances, local ordinances are tied up in the courts, but my expectation, my hope is that we're able to address this at the state level. State level.
1: And, uh, and she's pointing at me. You know, I I do believe it, it's abhorrent to have exorbitant usury <coughs> fees. I don't know about the bill. I most certainly would look at that. But it sounds
0: like in principle you may be sympathetic to some fix.
1: Yes, in principle Okay, Gentlemen in the corner
0: and then the gentleman in the back. I knew that we would not have uh, too few questions today.
3: Hi, <laughs> my name is Dr. Adrian Warren. I'm a counselor educator and member of the Texas Counseling Association. Yes, yes.
1: sir.
3: Um, first, I want to thank um, Representative Rial for the bill you're introducing on LGBT workplace protections. Um, but more my question or comment is really addressing both sides of investing <laughs> in our children, but also being more efficient. The issue that I'm continually hearing from my students and other professionals that I know in counseling is that we have school counselors with a master's degree and a lot of experience administering our state exams rather than actually seeing students and helping them. Um, Given the increase in suicide, like we've just had this week in Houston, it seems really really inefficient and a humanitarian crisis that our school counselors aren't seeing kids they're administering exams Mm -hmm.
0: so your question is about the standardized tests that the state has now uh, got in place and the degree to to which their time is taken up with that we just had a situation this last week as you know where the commissioner of education following the governor's lead has put the star test and the 15 percent rule related to the star test on pause (laughs) but the accountability Question in the state continues to be, as you know, controversial. I think more than 85% of school boards around the state, representing more than 90% of students, have passed resolutions against the state's testing system. This is going to be likely representative of an issue in the next session.
2: I'm so excited about this issue
0: because this coming session. Okay,
2: Carol, you're two o'clock. Okay? So there, there, we're going to be here for a yeah. while. I can see there, it. The, the, <laughs> this coming session promises an op- a, a chance to finally make progress on reforming our testing system. There is a broad coalition of industry groups, Mm -hmm. of educators, of concerned parents who want to reform testing, the high-stakes nature of testing. We are so out on a limb on testing. And this is something I think we can agree on. Texas is such an anomaly. We for our high school students have 15 tests. The the state next to us is New York. Not too much smaller than us. it's comparable in size. They have three exams. Let's talk about money. Mm-hmm. New York spends forty million dollars on their testing system. Guess how much Texas spends?
1: Five hundred million.
2: Five hundred million.
1: I'm not happy with
2: that. Five hundred million. Ten times. Yes. And what is it doing? What is it getting us? It actually, you know what? To answer this, let me read something that my little girl wrote.
3: <laughs>
2: he kept his phone on. I did. So here, here is Bella, Bella's description. Bella is in third grade of testing. We had to sit for like five, six, or seven hours. I finished my test in two hours, and I couldn't even read a book. My legs fell asleep. They didn't let me read until after lunch. I checked my work five times. I <coughs> did not have recess or PE. We're torturing our kids. We're not teaching them. We need to roll this back. Mm -hmm. We need to reduce the high-stakes nature of it because the high-stakes nature of this testing system distorts behavior. It produces results like this. It has teachers cutting corners, narrowing the curriculum, teaching to the test. We have 45 days of testing in our schools. This is ridiculous. Our kids are not learning. Representative
0: Tom Luce, who is regarded by many people in the state as one of the pillars of the community in terms of his views of education policy and other policy matters, said to me the other day, he is actually for, in the face of a lot of people being against, he is for the accountability system as it's currently in place because he says it's a myth that teachers teach to the test. They're teaching the curriculum. They're teaching what kids need to know. It happens to be on the test and ultimately the end result is the same. Tom Luce, and he's not the only one, people who have a strong point of view about this push back against the idea that somehow this is a disruption, that it's torture. They think it's simply teaching. You don't see any merit in that argument at all.
2: No, I see no merit in that argument. I think it's false. The evidence shows if you, and and, and it's not just true with educators, any profession, if you put all the, the weight of their job on the line for moving certain numbers. Guess what? They're going to ignore other responsibilities that aren't being measured to focus on those that are being measured.
0: Let me get Dr. Campbell, and maybe there's another area of agreement here between the two of you. On
1: I do believe that we've um, we're test heavy, but once again, you know, I need to sit down with the teachers and find out what is an alternative. Yeah. I mean, I'm old enough. When I was in school, our teacher, you know, we had the transparency thing and the little drum where they just copied off our test. And, you know, you might get a final exam at the end, and in your class that may be worth 10 to 25% of your grade. Mm-hmm. It was based on what the teacher felt they had taught and what you need to be responsible for. You know, I never heard parents cry out. The only time I heard anything was when my parents cried out, you made what? <laughs> so so there, there does need to be some type of testing. Sure. Don't know what the answer is yet. Yep. That it's too much money it seems like it was delivered too quickly and I like to see what the teachers in the classroom want for student performance, how to measure student performance and make sure we're not tying that to teacher performance. But if if our goal is to measure the knowledge for a child the testing needs to be directed to that. If a goal is to measure teacher performance test needs to be one that a teacher I mean I don't know but let's don't marry the two to try to you know one test to come up with two different things but I'm just saying I think that we do need to look at that it it is a little heavy came out quick it seems like I don't have all you know I haven't been in the details of it but we need to look at it.
0: All right, we have time, maybe for one or two more at most. I'm afraid, and I appreciate your patience. Uh, Natalia, you got one right there. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I'm going to take this one over here last because I feel like I've neglected this side. So <laughs>
3: there, and then over here. Yes, uh, sir. Thank you both for coming uh, to bring our conversation full circle back to pre-K. Um, based on an amazing amount of research that shows the effectiveness of pre-K <coughs> in ultimately improving the lot of uh, the lives of our students. Um, I feel that the one of the great failures of our state is not to provide universal pre-K for kids. Uh, of course, that would provide would require new revenues. So, would you guys be willing to vote to allow slots in limited capacity within our state if we could fully fund pre-K universally throughout the state with the revenues generated from those slots?
1: Slots. What is that? Why don't you take I, it? Sure. I, I'm just. I'm not. I'm not well, sure I understand the the slots. Are you talking about spaces? It's a lottery for, students. for students. children. No, no, students. Number of students. Pick.
0: Oh, slot Oh, slot, slot Oh, you! Oh, 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 on I no idea. You know what? If you, if, 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 if you, if you had asked Sorry. me to tell you what you were talking about, that was not on my list of things I, I would have said. <laughs> All right. So basically, let's, let's simplify this. Would you, would you permit gambling slot machines and the revenue generated from that be put into fund full-time pre-K? Is that correct? Okay, good.
1: I have a quick right. answer. I mean, I'll, I'll, I, don't that? That. Gambling, I don't mind answering that. I do that? Gambling, yes or no? I think we already have a pilot study out there. That was the lottery. Where are all the dollars that was meant for? My answer is is no on that. I'm committed to education. Right. But no, your opposition
0: to gambling or to slot machines in this case is is process rather than morality, because there are many people who oppose gambling on moral grounds. A lot of reasons. Your argument is simply a process one. The lottery showed us that this doesn't work. Don't go
2: there. It here. doesn't
1: work. Let's look. Represent for gambling.
0: I, I wouldn't connect the
2: two. I, I don't believe gambling is the answer for covering essential services. <laughs> uh, I do believe gambling is is pervasive. In our state, many Texans travel to bordering states to gamble. Um, they open up their laptop at home, the comfort of their home, and gamble online. And so, and and so, I, I think gambling is already taking place. And if people want to expand it in the te- in the state of Texas, my answer to that is, let's not view this as a silver bullet to our financial challenges. Um, and if this is gonna take place, it's, there's gonna to have to be a public vote. It's not gonna come by mandate. Legislative fiat.
0: Yeah. gentlemen, right here. Yes.
2: Thank you. My name is Salah Paselli. I'm a local area coordinator for the Tea Party and a citizen lobbyist. <laughs> My question is, as far as far edu- since we're on the topic of education, I've heard both of you say things like talking to the teachers and doing something in the legislation, with legislation and well, legislators. My question is, why aren't you talking about parents? Exactly. What role do we have as parents, besides teachers and besides legislatures? And what can the legislature do to encourage parents to be more involved in education and have a, a, a larger say in what their children are being Taught.
0: And in fact, to what degree, good question, to what degree should parents be involved in those decisions about curriculum and educational policy and all that? Always a flashpoint. Good good question to end on. Mr. Virial.
2: I, I think parents have a, a huge role to play. Uh, I'm a parent of a third grader and a first grader. They both go to a school in San Antonio, independent school district, a public school, our neighborhood school, Bonham Academy. And, and I believe it's the parents of Bonham that have helped transform that campus. Uh, So parents have a a big role to play. The state could do a better job of encouraging parental participation by pushing decision making down to campuses. I believe too often, decisions are made in the central office, Mm -hmm. not at the campus. Here's a thought experiment. Okay? Today we fund, we don't fund schools. We fund school districts. What if we were to fund schools? And let them purchase the amount of central office services they needed. Local control, Dr. Local Control. What do you think about
1: that? I I am for local control. I'm for empowering parents. Nobody knows better than the parents at home, how their child is doing, nor the school that is best for their child. What might be failing for one child might be great for another. Mm -hmm. I think we need to empower parents. It's our parents, students, and children—that mix—that's going to make a difference. The question is,
2: you So, I've also been an active parent for, for many years, and what I've also have seen is that sometimes parents get a little crazy. <laughs> no. <laughs> and so, um, we need to balance. We need to balance it, and I I would say that the principal has a huge role to play as the manager of the campus leading that campus mm-hmm. as a professional trained in curriculum and in balancing budgets, yeah. you know, we, we really need to do a much better job of preparing principals to lead those campuses and actually take on those greater responsibilities of decision making. And, and so it's not all parents. We, we really need to make sure that you know,
0: our principals have, a, have an, uh, a big role to play. Some power. All right. All right. Well,
2: we're
1: going to have to leave it. I, I
0: wish we could have another hour with these two. I know there are many more topics we did not get to that we could talk about, but it's a rare opportunity to hear from both of them, differing points of view, but respectful of one another. Yeah. Uh, I think it previews the fights we're going to see in go. Austin in the next uh, five or six months. Let us give a big hand, please, Representative Uriel, Senator Left Campbell. To all of you, thank you very much for coming. President, thank you very much. This Trib Live hot seat conversation was recorded in front of a live audience and is presented by the KDK Harmon Foundation, with the support of AT&T, Christus Health, BP, Raise Your Hand Texas, and the Texas Coalition of Dental Service Organizations. For more information on the Texas Tribune and the dozens of free Trib Live events the Tribune hosts each year, go to texastribune.org. Thank you.